0: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. Today is Tuesday, April 6th, and today we have an interview with John Rotanti. One of my favorite discussions, not, not to not to downgrade any old interviews, but one of my favorite discussions in a long time. It really challenged my thinking, uh, and I think we're going to re- – we probably titled this Rethinking Value, and hopefully to our listeners that are super value-oriented like ourselves, this kind of gives a little spin on things and allows you to sort of Reshape the way you think about the best businesses.
1: Loosen up a bit. Also, fun stuff on semiconductors. Didn't know John was a semi-expert on the investing landscape of the semiconductor industry. Not a
0: semi-expert, like half of an expert, like an expert on semis.
1: Well, both. I'd say like (laughs) he's not, you know, obviously he's not like a in the industry, but he knows a ton. And it was a pleasant surprise talking about that. We learned a lot about semiconductors, uh, which is weirdly a hot topic right now, but I think any listener will as well.
0: Okay. And we are reshaping the episode today. So we're not doing the traditional stories, hot water, stuff like that. We are basically any talking points that we have, we're just going to go back and forth after the interview.
1: Put the interview first, get the good stuff out there first. Right. We know some of you decided to skip ahead. Uh, we'll, we've that been, insult, we've been watching
0: the Times. Yeah,
1: that insult, We will. Uh, we will let it pass. But we know that that's the best part, so we're trying to save the the fun discussion between us to the back half of the show.
0: And we have our sales pitch. So, Seven Investing just came out with new recommendations, I guess, a few days ago. But uh, there was one that I've been looking at over the weekend, very interested. Yeah. The okay. Teams Wreck. Okay. Yeah. I think we've actually discussed it between ourselves. Uh, yeah, I can't I spoil what it is one, at
1: all, but yes, I do agree.
0: It's something I really like. Uh, and. I know we've talked about thousands of companies in the past, but we've talked about it before.
1: Okay. So, Ooh, all right. Spoiler. All thing. right. Wow. Giving uh, a little bit of hint. Yeah. I mean, I like Simons and Honor Bonds. Um, sorry, Honor Bonds, if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. We'll get that right at some point. Oh, that but, one was a good
0: one. That one, I've actually, I heard some feedback about that one this weekend as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, so the, A the, good batch, honestly. Yeah. Great batch. I mean, I might not understand Max's. uh or, <laughs> Baby steps within the biotech industry, but overall, they're giving out great research and their performance speaks for themselves. Their total return over the last year plus is beating the market by 15% as of today. And, and keep they put in mind they, or go ahead.
0: they it's the returns are benchmarked from the time that they recommend it. So any new month recommendations, they've only been whatever, they've only had a month to yeah. perform. So it's even better. Yeah,
1: they're really. putting their yeah, and they're putting their cards on the table each month. And they, they might time weight it. So don't I wouldn't make that claim. There might be a time weight there. But either I way think
0: I'm pretty sure I'm right on this.
1: Okay. Well, we're not. Yeah, let's not guarantee that. <laughs> uh, there might be a disclosure. They might time weight it or whatever. But if that's true, then yeah, they are doing better than than we even think. But let's not belabor this. Uh, you get ten dollars off using our code CCM at checkout. That makes it only seven bucks for your first month. That's Try right. it out. You can stick around. You can subscribe for a year. Get another discount. I believe it's only a hundred it's either one hundred seventy or one hundred sixty bucks for a full year. We
0: should probably know that. We
1: either should way. know that, but either way, I think, great.
0: I think the sales pitch is, uh, I think that sold you guys, hopefully. So, uh, without further ado, here's the interview.
2: Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a
1: CCM media group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital,
2: and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode.
0: Okay, today we are welcomed by John Rotanti, I believe. The official title is Senior Analyst and co-host of Motley Fool Live. Uh, but I met John this summer. Uh, he taught, I think, three different classes on financial statement analysis and valuation as well. Also, Ian, Ian and Ryan said that was their favorite class. So just, was, uh, just to uh, give you some praise here to start it out. <laughs> but why don't, uh, why don't you give the listeners a little bit of background on your career? Uh, so how'd you get to the Fool? And then uh, what all, I guess, do you do now at the Fool?
2: Well, first of all, thank you uh Ryan and Brady for having me. I'm really thrilled and honored to be on on your on your show. Um so how did I get to the fool? Um I, I grew up sort of privileged, like growing up and and spoiled, honestly. So, you know, we we grew up in an upscale neighborhood and I went to a private school that was, you know, cost as much as a university and um, by the time I went to college, I'd been to Hawaii seven times, and I'd, I'd been to Europe two, twice at least, maybe two or three times. Um, we, we weren't over-the-top extravagant, but we, we had everything that we needed. By the time I went to college, I had had two cars. My parents bought me one used forerunner and then a new two-door Chevy Tahoe. And so just to give you an idea of how I grew up. Um, and so I, I went to college not knowing the value of a dollar. Um, everything was taken care for me. I didn't, I didn't know what a stock was, what a bond was like literally if someone asked me what was a stock, couldn't have, couldn't have even said one word, knew nothing. And anyway, I'm at college. I'm a freshman, uh, expensive university, university of Richmond. And I start to get these hints that my parents are going through money trouble. And so the first hint was I had to go buy a book at the bookstore for class. And I was on my parents' credit card. At the time, like I said, I didn't have a job. i never worked. Um, I was spoiled. And I went to buy the the book, like a textbook, like expensive, $100, $200, but credit card didn't didn't go through. And so I called my mom and I was like, mom, what's up? And she's like, she blamed the credit card. Oh, the credit card company made a mistake. And, I, and so I believed her, whatever. So I eventually bought the book. And and then the second thing is I wanted to buy flowers for my girlfriend at the time for Valentine's Day, I think, or like our anniversary or something. And I try to order from like 1-800-Flowers or 1-800-Flowers yeah, or whatever online.
0: Oh, the company actually, yeah. I think yeah. Like 1-800-Flowers.com. Every sports
2: or every sports radio
0: commercial, you get it.
2: Okay, so. yeah. And and didn't go through. So I called mom again. She blamed the credit card company again. And the last thing, uh, every year when, when I was growing up, my friends and I would try to go to a different baseball stadium. So we went to St. Louis Cardinals. And got to the hotel with my friends, totally embarrassed, get to the front desk, give the credit card, doesn't go through. So I eventually had a real serious conversation with my parents and re- and found out that they had overextended themselves and took on too much debt. And we had been living beyond our means. And I had no idea. And they never told me before. And But I felt bad because they're paying for my expensive education. And so I, 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 I said to myself, I need to find a way to help. So I went to the library and I read One Up on Wall Street by Peter Lynch mm-hmm. and the book changed my life, changed my life. I, that ever since then, I don't know if I was 18 or 19, I have not stopped reading about investing. But that book showed me, uh, when, I, when I was done with that book and I read it in like a day or two, um, I knew exactly what a stock was. I knew that I could understand their, yeah, yeah. I knew right, right, that uh, I could- Got it right here. We got a little bookshelf right here. Have it on their desk. Um, yeah. I knew that I could understand businesses by just observing them. In the everyday world, whether it's Starbucks or um, Buffalo Wild Wings at the time or whatever I was looking at. And so that book changed my life and I haven't stopped trying to learn about business and investing ever since then. Graduated from the University of Richmond, worked in the family business for a while, which was hospitality down in New Orleans. So restaurant uh, and a small hotel, like 14 room guest house hotel. But all I could think about was, was Lynch and Buffett and stocks. And so I went back to get an MBA and, uh, got an MBA at Tulane university and then went immediately to I graduated in a year and a half, went immediately to New York and spent five years in New York. Um, and then I eventually made my way to the Fool, and I've been at the Molly Fool for seven years and now I'm a senior analyst. All nice. right. Yeah. Man. I feel
0: like Peter Lynch is probably one of the best ones to start with. Uh, you don't want to go right to, uh, <laughs> well, that's the thing. When you and start with Graham. the intelligent investor, that one can really throw people off. They're like, ooh, is it really like this? Is
2: right.
1: Trust me, it's not that hard. Maybe that should be like your fifth book or something.
2: Like totally, that. totally agree. Yeah. 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 When people ask me for their like the books to start with, I always say Lynch, one up on Wall Street, or his other two books, uh, Beat the Street and Learn to Earn. Uh, and then Joel Greenblatt, Joel Greenblatt, the little book that beats the market. Because that book, you could read it in an hour and it's two metrics. It's return on invested capital and earnings yield, which is the inverse of the P-E ratio. Yeah. And so it's just, it just simplifies it down to two key metrics. And then the third would be um, the little book on building wealth, I think it's called, um, All About Moats and Compounders by Pat Dorsey. Those are my three like intro books. Love them
1: right okay Are we got ready to go to the next question yeah. all right so we thought we'd switch to kind of more your style and then we'll get into the market in general some of the stuff you're looking at but how has health and fitness played a role in your investment career i know this is not something a lot of people look at and if you look at the you know maybe the best investor of all time he you could argue he wasn't maybe taking care of his health but how we're not all like buffett how does health and fitness play a role in your investment career
2: yeah, so you know, I mentioned to Ryan that um, health and fitness is important to me, and I should start off by saying that when I was trying to save up money for for my MBA program, uh, I was a personal trainer. I became a certified personal trainer, and um, this was this was you know a, a decade after I got interested in investing, or, or longer. And so, I, so as I'm a personal trainer, at the whole time I'm thinking about investing, I'm thinking about stocks. Um, And one of the first things I noticed, whether it was from my own clients or just other clients at the gym, I I worked at this small personal training studio. Um, I met a lot of people, clients at the gym who had accumulated enormous wealth um, over the years. You know, they were maybe retired. They'd accumulated in a lot, you know, in several cases, tens of millions of dollars. Um, but they were in, in in such bad shape and in such bad health that they really couldn't enjoy it because they, they, they were living in pain and, and they couldn't get around that well, um, whatever it was. And so the first lesson for me was to take care of my mind and my body uh, and to try to age well. But the other thing is... Um, the, the math of investing right compounding interest and and the way that compounding interest works by definition is is you make money slowly for a really long time for a really long time and like if you want to you know if you invest 10000 dollars I think um, honestly I did this math several months ago I'm not going to remember it exactly but if you invest ten thousand dollars and it you know it grows at like the market rate or something it'll take you like like thirty or forty years to become a millionaire, something like that. but then what but then after those forty years, the way the math works is then exponential growth kicks in. And so that's why that's why Buffett um, you know generated ninety percent of the of his wealth after the age of sixty five or something like that, because that's how the math works. And so uh, if you want to give compounding interest, which is this magical force, right? If you want to give it as long of, of, a, of a time to work as possible, then we should try to live as long as possible. So that's the second the way that I, I relate health and fitness to investing. And then just finally, uh, I'm fascinated by invention and innovation. And so I'd like to live as long as I can so that I can witness as much technology and witness as much marvel as I can.
1: Yeah, I've always thought and this is kind of a, it's a weird thing, we were born like right before the turn of the 21st century. It would be cool to live to like 2100, but that's a that's an <laughs> audacious goal. But on the on the point of uh the health and fitness side, yeah, you get all the say if you start saving when you're 20 and you're 30, um you get those returns in like in between ages 60 and 80 if you're not really taking care of your body. I mean,
0: I don't know. I I don't say what's the point, but it's like, you know, the appeal is the mean. appeal for all that the appeal for long-term investing isn't that great if you don't think you'll live that long yeah. <laughs> right but anyway I guess our next question is kind of more towards your uh, investing style um, and maybe experiences but what would you consider some of your biggest mistakes and then also for anyone that doesn't know your style at all what what area have you had the most success awesome
2: Um so the biggest mistake I've made as an investor uh, was the hours and the days and the weeks and, and, and the months and maybe the years of my life that I wasted trying to get a discounted cash flow model perfect. Um, I'm not saying that these, these DCFs, these discounted cash flow models aren't useful. I do use them, um, but I let them dominate my time and dominate my process. And that added zero value for me, zero it, it 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 in fact um, took value. It, it's honestly frustrating for me to look back on the days, sometimes without sleep, early on, um, that I used to waste on these models for companies like Netflix and Amazon. And I'd use these ridiculously conservative assumptions because I was a value investor, right? Like that's you know at the time I was this dyed in the wool value investor. And so, you know, you have to use conservative assumptions and I would use these high hurdle rates um, because, you know, I, at the time I pretended like I had a clue what I was doing. And then I'd come up with some DCF value that was like 20 or 25% lower than the stock price at the time. So I never bought. Um, And to this day, I've never bought a single share of Amazon. I've never bought a single share of Netflix because I used to let my models and really my ideology, this like value investing ideology, rule my investing life. And, um, and, and it stole return for me. I mean, I, I think some of my biggest mistakes were these mistakes of, of omission. Uh, and so it, literally one time I told myself I'd buy Amazon if it fell 5% more, 5%, and it uh-huh. never did. And that was a 1,000% ago or something like that. Um, and so my biggest mistake was letting the time that I tried to like find precision, which you can't find in, in a model. Your models have to have like wide error bands and, and you have to do scenario analysis and um, come up with a range of values. Well, I, you know, when I was a beginner, I was trying to come up with like to the decimal precision and it was a waste of time. Um, my other big mistake was not taking enough risk when I was younger. And by that, I mean I should have taken larger positions in some stocks um,
0: like ones you had conviction in, but yeah. you just were afraid to size up
2: yeah, basically i you know i I was to today this scar helped helps me, but at the time, I was scarred from seeing my parents go through those money struggles and and i, I can add I can add more to that really quickly. My parents ended up filing for. Uh, for bankruptcy and their business filed for bankruptcy. Um, And at the time that was a scar. And so I was very careful with money. Now that is, it's my biggest strength because I've seen my parents come out on the other side. Right. And so I've seen um, what, what financial difficulty looks like. And, and like my dad says, you know, the market's not going to eat you. Like you'll survive. Just be just be careful. And so I think that was a mistake. You know, I, I bought Visa, for example, which is still one of my largest positions to this day. Um, around the IPO, not on the day or the week, but I bought it like maybe in its first year of trading or something. But I bought five hundred dollars worth at the time, right? And so um, I had a high, high conviction in Visa. But I just didn't size it appropriately, so I do think that I should have taken a little more risk when I was younger. Um, and then like some and my, my losing investment, so those were mistakes All right. of, of omission, but like my biggest losers, honestly, I haven't had many big losers. I've had two stocks that have gone down more than 50%. And by more than 50%, I mean like 55, maybe 60%. I don't remember exactly, but not 90, 80 or 90%. Um, both of them were years ago. One was BlackBerry. Uh, and one was a company called Lucadia, founded by Ian Cumming and Joe Steinberg. It's now called Jeffries um, Investment Bank, basically. Right. Um, I just haven't had Big losers or blowups because I've always stacked my portfolio with the highest quality, most resilient, growing businesses I can find, and I'm, I haven't been that wrong on the business. Just, just honestly, um, I've gotten valuation wrong where I've paid too high of a stock price, pl- too high of a stock price. But, but, but when you pay too high of a stock price for these, these resilient, high-quality growth businesses. Um, the stock doesn't blow up in your face. Maybe the stock underperforms the market, right? Or maybe it takes me five five years for the for the um, for the business to sort of grow into that stock price, and so and so I have like small returns from the investment, but it's not a blow up. It's not a money loser. It's right. more of an opportunity cost for me. And so those are the types of mistakes that I've made.
0: So I mean, how long did that? how long did it take you to kind of make that pivot then away from like the conservative DCFs to, okay, this is getting me nowhere. Uh, I was right on management and I was just way too conservative on the price. Like did, was that too late in your career? Do you think, or have you been doing that for a while now?
2: Uh, For a while, for sure. So, um, you know, so, so I'll, I'll say two things. So I read a quote, um, from Warren Buffett fairly early in, in my career. I, you know, Probably when I was, I started when I was 18 or 19, I probably came across this quote in my late 20s where, where Buffett talked about how his partner and vice chairman at, at, at Berkshire Hathaway, um, Charlie Munger, how Charlie convinced him to, to focus on you know, wonderful businesses. And that in the long run, it's better if you pay a fair price for a wonderful business than uh, a great price just for a fair business. And so when I saw Buffett make that shift, it was easier for me to make that shift because at the time, I was a, buffled, a Buffett disciple, honestly. And, and there's nothing wrong with saying that. I mean, you know... Early in my career, after I read Lynch and stuff like that, one of my claims to fame was that I read everything that I could find written by Buffett or about Buffett. And so at the time, that meant like, like early internet searches, but it meant, to, it meant going to Borders Bookstore, it meant going to um, Barnes & Noble Bookstore, it meant doing Amazon, trying to find everything he had written or that was written about him. So I felt like I had a good understanding of Buffett um, and so, when I saw that he made that pivot, I made that pivot. But here's what helped me more than that. My first job after I got an MBA was equity research in New York. I sold equity research um, to institutions. It's called Institutional Equity Research Sales. And basically, it's cold calling mutual funds and hedge funds, uh, pension funds sometimes, to see or high net worth individuals to see if they wanted to buy our research. And The my clients, so these hedge funds and the mutual funds that that I resonated the most with, the ones that I developed the longest-term relationships with, several of them that I still talk to to this day, they convinced me on these phone calls um, about the advantages of investing in quality, durable growth businesses. One of the best things, I can't stress this enough, was the network that I built early on. Working in institutional equity sales, I, I I I met some amazing investors, and to this day I've stayed in touch with several of them.
1: It seems like the ultimate quality investor is or are the Gardner brothers. I mean, is the Motley Fool
2: influenced you there as well? Without a doubt. So I've been at the Motley Fool for seven years, but before I joined, um, at the time we had we had five newsletters um, that were sort of. Introductory newsletters, uh, meaning they weren't really high price point. So we had a dividend newsletter. We had a small cap newsletter. We had Stock Advisor, which is Tom and David Gardner picks. We had Rule Breakers, which is David Gardner picks. um, And then we had a value investing newsletter. But it was a a foolish take on value investing. I subscribed to all of those five for... For at least five years, at least five years. I'm, real, I'm bad with timeframes. It could have been longer, <laughs> but it, I just really am. At least five years before I joined The Fool. Um, and I eventually wrote a book on investing that I published in 2013. And uh, Joe Major, who now runs uh, one of our sister companies at The Motley Fool.
0: In uh, Australia, where, right?
2: Yeah, in Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the smartest investors I've ever met. He actually endorsed my book. So so the Tom and David and that, that whole thing, definitely, um, an influence on me, but you asked, when did I make the pivot? And so when I was working in New York in, um, in 2010, I was already in, I was already a Foolish subscriber, but when I first made that pivot was when I saw that Buffett had made that pivot and I was in my late twenties. And I, I was at that time, I was not a Molly Fool subscriber.
0: I guess. Yeah. The only, it. That quote, I feel like resonates with a lot of people. And the only problem that I see is that sometimes people can extrapolate that to pay anything for the quality business or pay anything for the wonderful business. Do you still try to kind of use those scars that you generated from the conservative DCFs in your philosophy today? Or is it
2: kind of more leniency on quality? I give leniency on quality for sure, but I don't pay any price. Well, um, if I pay any price... It's a that in that case it would be a very small position. So what I do is I have a checklist, and and the companies that score highest on that checklist, it's basically a resiliency quality growth checklist, and the companies that score highest on that checklist, it's ten questions. Um, I, may, I make my largest positions at the outset, right? So some positions I've I've owned for ten years and they've grown to be really large positions, but I'm talking about my initial investment um, for it to be a a full position. It's got to score high on that checklist. But if a company either doesn't score high on that checklist today, but I just have a good gut feeling about it because it's like a really disruptive innovator or something like that, or it scores high on the checklist, but the, the valuation just seems insane to me, it doesn't, it, it doesn't preclude me from taking a very small position. So in those right. two ca- in those two cases, if if it scores high on the checklist but the valuation just doesn't seem sane, or if it doesn't presently score high on the checklist but I think it will in the future, I still may buy a small position. And then hopefully,
1: if they execute prices a little better, maybe be enlarge it over time. That's the oh yeah. kind of the oh, framework
2: for sure. And the other thing is, you know, everyone talks about, about averaging down, and I've had some opportunities in my in my investing career where I've. I've had great opportunities to average down, but for some of my favorite businesses that I've owned the longest, I'm buying on the way up too. right? right. I'm buying several times. And so, like I said, I started Visa off at a $500 position, but since then I've learned and I've, I've bought Visa probably 10 different times or something And, and at, at higher prices than I initially did.
1: Yeah. That's a hard thing to do, but we'll, uh, we'll pivot to maybe more of the market in general, uh, You know, when you're researching stuff right now, do you see any potential mispricings in the market? If so, where and
2: maybe why do you think that as well? So nothing slaps me in the face right now as terribly mispriced on the downside, like undervalued. It did in March of last year. um, And I I deployed a lot of, of capital, not as much as I wanted to but I, de- I deployed a lot of capital in, in March and April of last year. Um, it's quick. It, it happened so quickly. I think that happened to all of us. Man, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. So I going into that, I had a lot of cash on the sidelines because at the time I was, I was reading a lot of macro research about how there was just a lot of excess in the markets from a, from like a debt, perspective, corporate debt and government debt and household debt. So at the time, going into, going into the, the market crash last year, corporate debt was at a record, government debt was at a record, credit, uh, household debt and credit card debt were all at record. And then I, I thought valuations were kind of high. Um, and so I just started kind of raising a little cash. I'm not going to say I timed the market. It was literally complete luck. But I had a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines, just kind of waiting. And then, like you said, it all—the recovery happened. It was it was the fastest thirty percent drop in history, and then the fastest recovery in history. And so, I was only able to deploy about thirty five percent of what I wanted to. But um, yeah, but maybe we'll get another bite at the apple sometime soon. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so nothing has slapped me in the face right now. What I will say is, so like, I I can't say like. XYZ stock is trading at a 50% discount to my estimate of fair value or something like that. I just don't see that today based on the universe of stocks that I focus on. Like I'm one person, right? I can only look at so many stocks. So based on the 50 or so that I cover, I don't see that today. Even if I did though, even if I did see, this is is how I, I hope to answer this question differently than maybe some other people will. Um, even if I did see something that was like, okay, this is trading at 50 cents on the dollar based on my estimate of value, I don't think that would be the best opportunity. I think the best opportunities today and the biggest mispricing today is not going to come from that sort of traditional value investing margin of safety, but something that is, is like an innovative growth business that is going to fundamentally change the way we work or live. So actually, I think the biggest mispricing today probably comes from one of those businesses that seems overvalued. Honestly, um, so for me, it could be a company like Redfin, you know, with a market cap of only six point five billion or so. When I checked yesterday, um, these are companies that I own that I would put in this basket. Could be a company like Peloton in that thirty billion dollar market cap range. Could be a company like Zoom or Shopify in that. 90 to 120, $130 billion market cap range. Could even be a company like Tesla in the $600 billion market cap range. Um, I, own, I own others, but, but the point is, I think all of those companies I just mentioned Redfin, Peloton, I forgot, Zoom, Shop, Tesla, um, I, they're all fundamentally changing the way we work or live. And I think they could potentially be multi baggers from here. Although they all kind of look expensive if you if you look at traditional metrics.
1: Yeah, it's kind of the it's a thing that all not all, but basically I kind of, you know, the there's a lot of people that maybe critique like the foolish style of investing, they're like, oh, you're just playing in stuff that's all it's all overvalued, you know. Extrapolating. And it seems like people get on their high horse about that. And I think everyone, including us, have a tendency to do that. But the thing is, if no one's paying attention to these businesses, maybe, you know, and they're like, oh, it's overvalued, forget it. That can leave an opportunity where maybe not as many people are looking at these things. Is that kind of something that comes into play?
2: Or? Yes, yes. Um, so so there's two things. Um, one of the skills that I think Tom and David are exceptional at, maybe the best I've ever seen. And, and I, I should I should say... Um, I don't say that lightly. One of the things that I do, one of my responsibilities at The Motley Fool, one of the things I get paid for um, at The Motley Fool is to study other investors, uh, star investors, and to bring them in to teach these classes to our team and to bring them onto our interview shows and to interview them for our members. So I develop really good long-term relationships with some star investors. Um, So I don't say this lightly. One of the things Tom and David are best at and one of the things they have taught uh, the investing team at the Motley Fool over 25 plus years is to find companies where um, the market is undervaluing the durability of the growth. Right, so we're really good at finding businesses that we think will grow faster than the market expects, or longer than the market expects, or both—faster and longer than the market expects. And so, what we're really good at the Motley Fool is um finding great businesses that we have high conviction in and then paying more attention to what could go right than what could go wrong. So yes, there's a lot of that in there. Um on the other hand, I do think there are there are pockets of of overvaluation in in the stock market today. Not everything that uh, is priced at, you know, 15 to 50 times sales is going to be a world changer. Yeah. Is going At least I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong. But not everything in that basket of SaaS companies that everyone loves right now is going to be a world changer. At least I don't think so. Um, let me give you an example. So, um, uh, what is... Th- Clubhouse is—is is it called Clubhouse? I haven't been on it as, yet. So, yeah, Clubhouse. Yeah, Clubhouse. The audio thing is. Your, um, yeah. yeah. So I know it's not a public company, but just if we're talking about durable competitive advantages, I've never been on Clubhouse. It may be a fantastic experience. I know a lot of people talk about how they're learning and networking through Clubhouse, and and it may be a fantastic experience. But in the last two or three days, I've read that Spotify is is coming up with a competing sort of product. I've read that LinkedIn is coming up with a competing sort of product. And Twitter came out with Spaces like a couple of weeks ago, I think. So these things come and go really quickly and, and, and peer competitive products can pop up really quickly. And so in my opinion, and I could be wrong about this and I reserve the right to be wrong, uh, the, barrier, the barriers to entry around something like that are really, really, really low. A lot of SaaS companies um, have multiple, multiple competitors out there. So low code, no code. Appian's a company I own. Um, it's it's multi bagged for me. Multi bagged. Have really high regard for the management. Uh, love what they're doing about like democratizing engineering because now anyone across the business can become a coder, right? Like love that concept. Uh, Microsoft has a product. ServiceNow is coming out with a product. I think there's a company called Pivotal Software that has a product competing product. So, like, I have a lower, personally, a lower conviction that Appian is going to be dominating what they do 10 years from now than I do some other companies, just because there's so many competing products. Um, so, I'm really, when I'm talking about these companies like a Shopify or like a Tesla, um, I'm really talking about companies that I think would be hard to replicate, if that makes sense.
1: No, I, that completely makes sense. The, So I guess that comes back to, do you have more like leniency on valuation for companies that have a history of executing? Like, Because you compare it to, say, a company that's coming out through a SPAC, they got a great concept, maybe it's a cool idea. But if a company has a 20-year track record of, or even a 10-year track record, and they built up that. You know, competitive advantage, does that give you? Are sure, you more sure. lenient on valuation then? Uh,
2: I, I, yes, I, I'm more lenient in a, in a couple of ways. I'm more lenient in the, in the sense that I'm going to um, be slightly more aggressive with my assumptions in my model. Um, I'm going, if, if it's a company that has proven it is adaptable, it's, if it's a company that has proven that it can innovate. If it's a company that has proven it can take advantage of cycles. Um, So, for example, when there's a down cycle, it goes into that cycle resilient and strong. And it is aggressive at investing in the bottom of that cycle when everyone else in the industry is sort of like struggling to survive. And it can prove that it's going to come out of that cycle stronger with more market share and faster growth in the competition. If these companies have proven these things in, in, in the past, then yes, I'm going to give them more credit in my model. Um, or I may give them a lower uh, discount rate in my model. Or I may just say, F it and take a small position no matter what, if I believe in the business and the management.
0: Uh, okay, makes sense. so we got to hit a small break here, but we have more questions in the back half.
2: Cox Panoramic Wi
1: Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is... Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked. Thanks to Advanced Security, included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced Security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply.
0: Okay, we just left off uh, basically talking about a little bit of leniency on when it comes to these disruptors or competitively advantaged companies. So I would follow that up with saying you know, you're know, you a little more, I guess, aggressive or optimistic in your model. Do you actually still use DCF still at all, or is it just kind of mental
2: models? It's a really good question. Um, here's how I, yes, but here's how I use DCF. Um, I use a reverse DCF to see what the market is pricing into the stock. And then I ask myself uh, if that's reasonable. I have a really, really cool model. Cause here's what I did, and then and and basically I I, I sent this to everyone across my team like um, I don't know a couple weeks ago or something, but I've had it for a while. Um, so I took Oswat Demaderon's model on his on his website. His just it's, I think he calls it simple free cash flow model, and I love the model because the heart of the model is eight line items long. That's it. So it's, 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 it's as simple as it needs to be. It's as complicated as it needs to be. It only captures the drivers of value, which is revenue growth, EBIT margins, right? Tax rate, Nopat, and then reinvestment. And then you subtract reinvestment from Nopat and you get free cash flow. That's it. And then the model also. Um, are, are it's, it's linked to return on invested capital. And so as the company grows in the model and scales, you can see if returns on invested capital are staying high or if they're increasing and scaling with the business. But what I did is, I if, you, if, you, if you're familiar with that model, there's an input page and you have to answer like like 30 or 40 questions, yes or no, and all these things. I just got rid of that whole input page. Got rid of the whole input page just to simplify it. Because... I don't want to spend a lot of time on mo- my models, right? So now my input page is put the ticker in and put the date in. The, that's the first thing I, I did to change the model because his model is, is perfect as it is. I just simplified it. The second thing I did is I added five years of historicals. So now when I put in the ticker and the date and hit enter, five years of historicals pop up because the third thing I did is I, I linked it to CapIQ. S&P Global. And so I have this great model. Then what I do is I pick a, I pick a tax rate and I run it across, like keeping everything simple, just run it across 10 years of the model. Uh, I pick a discount rate, just run it across 10 years of the model. Same discount rate I use in the terminal. So only thing I have to then plug and play in this reverse DCF is re- different revenue growth rates and different EBIT margins. Because the tax rate, I'm keeping, I'm running the same across the model, just keeping it standard. Discount rate, I'm just keeping standard. Um, sales to capital ratio um, is basically a measure of how efficient the business is. And the higher that ratio, the more capital efficient is. Um, I, I keep that standard basically across the model. And that drives the reinvestment rate, which is how much you subtract from Notepad to get your free cash flow. So I keep everything... Sort of frozen across the model, except revenue growth rate and EBIT margins. And so then I can just plug and play numbers to see what the model is baking into the stock price, what the market, I'm sorry, is baking into the stock price. Right. And then I ask myself if that's reasonable. Um, and I do some scenario analysis around that. The other thing I do, so that's one thing that I always do. The other thing I do is I use free cash flow yields, um, enterprise value to free cash, the inverse of enterprise value to free cash flow would be the free cash flow yield. And um, that's because research, empirical research from five or six different sources, more than that, but several, uh, say that free cash flow yield is the number one determiner of um, future returns. And so I, I do free cash flow yield plus my expected growth in, in free cash flow that the company will have over like the next five years to come up with like a, a forward rate of return, basically. So if free cash flow yield is 5% and i think the company can grow its free cash flow at 10%. then i'm expecting roughly 15% annualized return over the next um, 5 years. now you got to be careful with free cash flow because like for example, ge crappy business um, you know it's it's trying it's trying to recover but uh, it's sold off to survive. it's sold yeah. off a lot of assets, a lot of business lines. so if you look at its free that that's cash inflow so if you look at its free cash flow from like a couple of years ago, it was massive, but not because the business generated any free cash flow, because they sold off all these assets. And so if you would have done a screen for free cash flow yield, it would come at like 30% if you're using a trailing free cash flow number. So you have to, you have to be aware of where that cash flow is coming from. On the other hand, Disney spent $70 billion buying Fox. And if you're calculating free cash flow correctly, you're subtracting acquisitions. And so Disney, if you're looking back a couple years ago, would have this, this negative free cash flow yield, which is ridiculous because Disney is, is generally one of the top thirty free cash flow generators in the S and P 500. So you have to you can't just screen for free cash flow yield. Um, and then the third thing is, depending on the, the business or the industry, I may do I, I may add a third tool, right? Like so, let's say a company in in that industry was recently acquired, then maybe I'll do like an acquisition multiple. Right. Um, but you don't always have those to go off of. So, but always I'll do a reverse DCF and a free cash flow yield plus expected growth.
0: All right. Where do you see the most innovation going on now uh, in the market, I guess? And just, I mean, my concern is that there is a lot of theoretical innovation going on where it's like uh, SPACs, TVs, right? SPACs, and, you know, they're. Disrupting the old way of doing business. Well, they're disrupting IR presentation slides, and everyone's <laughs> going to have grow their revenue 100 percent by 2024, right? But I guess uh, what I'm asking yeah. is, where do you see innovation versus where, uh, uh, where do you see innovation really taking place?
2: Yeah, yeah. I think just like everything, right? Like there's there's levels to innovation, right? Like, yeah, uh, you, know, you know, a college athlete, you know, gets, gets sometimes gets a rude awakening when they, when they enter like the pro leagues, right. Just like everything, there's levels. Um, now some college athletes are are superstars and they, and they just dominate the pros, but, but for the most part, when you enter the pros, it's an, it's a different experience. It's a new level. And I think like, like that there's levels to innovation as well. And, uh, I see, innovation taking place in lots of different places across the market. So Elon Musk's companies, Tesla and SpaceX um, there's, there's no question those companies are innovating at a very, very high level. Um, So that's one example. And I, and I do own Tesla. Um, But one of the places I see the most innovation is in, is in hardware, honestly. So, and by hardware, I mean equipment or machinery um, that becomes the common tool used by nearly everyone in an industry and so in healthcare, for example, intuitive surgicals minimally invasive robotically assisted surgical systems, all doctors are trained on the da Vinci robot by intuitive surgical um, and the the robot provides precision and provides vision that is highly, highly innovative, way above and beyond what, um, what humans can achieve, beyond what a traditional arthroscopic uh, surgery tools can achieve. Right. So there's real innovation happening there. Um, Illumina in healthcare. Uh, their gene sequencing equipment. Um, It has, you know, 90% market share or something like that. That equipment is highly, highly um, innovative. And both of those companies, by the way, are on my 30 stock resiliency portfolio that I published on, on fool.com. But the best example of these machines um, where the innovation Wows me the most is taking place in the semiconductor equipment space, uh, and 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 before I go any further, uh, let me say that these technologies are really pushing the bounds of physics, and so it's hard for me to wrap my head around. And so what I did was I reached out to um, to people that know far more about this than me over the last several years, uh, and learned uh, quite a lot about about the industry, and so. Uh, the team at NZS Capital—they're—they're—they're they're, they're experts at semiconductor, um, especially semiconductor capital equipment. In addition, I've spoken to several PhDs at Gartner. I've spoken to several people that worked in the semiconductor industry for for decades. Um, some of them at Gartner as well. I've spoken to other portfolio managers from large funds. Some of them on my show. Uh, to learn about the semiconductor industry. And so I'm, I'm really standing on shoulders with what I'm about. Uh, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants with what I'm about to say. But these companies are, are literally bending the bounds of physics. They're doing things that were, was thought impossible years ago. And so ASML, um, a European company, is the only company on earth offering extreme ultraviolet lithography. EUV lithography, which is tiny wavelength of light that is shined through a mask or a filter, basically, to stencil or trace a pattern onto a silicon wafer, onto a semiconductor wafer. And the way it works is, honestly, I hope you're as wowed by this as I am, a tiny microscopic drop of molten tin is hit by lasers and those lasers vaporize the molten tin and turn that molten tin ball into a ball of, of, of plasma shining so bright that they create this extreme ultraviolet light source. The science is so complicated and, and magical that no one else has figured out at scale how to do it. And Moore's law, Moore's law, Which is the law that says that semiconductors, um, let me get this right, they become twice as two times more powerful, and uh half and the cost is cut in half every two years. That's what Moore's law says. Yeah. Yeah. So um Moore's Law would not exist, would not exist without these machines made by one company on Earth. So Uh, Oh, yeah. And by the way, this whole process that I just described, it happens between 30 and 50,000 times per second. So these machines move at like G4 speeds. A a silicon wafer is like 12 inches in diameter. And you can get 500 exposures. So like it happens 500 times across this silicon wafer. And so you cut the chips out of the wafer. This is happening 50,000 times a second. It's really, really magical. Another, another company in the semiconductor capital equipment space is LAM Research. Um, and they make these etching tools that etch patterns. So the ASML, the company we just discussed, they, they trace the pattern onto the, onto the wafer. And LAM Research then goes in and its tools etch or cut away. Um, At the pattern that was just drawn onto the wafer, but they do so with precision surgery. They drill a trillion, a trillion with a T perfect contact holes all the way down. Oh, I should say these, these silicon, uh, these wafers, these chips, uh, for the most advanced chips, they now have like 200 layers. Think about it like a, like a skyscraper. Yeah. Um, they have 200 layers and billions of transistors, And all of these transistors through all of these layers have to connect and talk to each other. And so, LAM has to drill a a trillion holes, perfect holes, from the top to the bottom of these 200 layers of deposit or of deposition on this chip. And, And these holes, each one is one thousandth of the diameter of a human hair. So this is truly precision surgery happening at an atomic level. And, 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 and these machines are, are, are magical. They're bending the laws of physics. So that's one area where I'm seeing a lot of innovation is these hardware machines that everyone in the industry has to use, whether it's the healthcare industry with Intuitive Surgical and Illumina or the semiconductor industry with ASML and LAM research.
1: And the, the, uh, not only does that tech sound fascinating and it's kind of that's how that type of tech is how they're getting the uh, the chip size down to like 9 nanometers down to 7 nanometers correct or am i or am i wrong there's that kind of the, some of the
2: inputs into that or yeah so now there's a company taiwan semiconductor that that is doing at scale 5 nanometer chips and they're they're going to open they plan to open a 3 nanometer Fabrication facility in in the second half of 2022. What that means is that the distance. You know, I I just said these are um, these holes are are one thousandth the diameter of a human hair. Um, The distance when you're putting a billion or billions of transistors. I think the M1 chip from Apple had 16 billion. When you're putting billions of transistors on something the size of uh, a, a thumbnail. Or, or a stamp, a postal stamp. Um, the space between the transistors is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, thinner and thinner. And that's what you mean when, you, when you're talking about uh, going right. nine nanometer to seven nanometer to five nanometer, and we will get to three nanometer and beyond maybe. EUV, ASML, the extreme ultraviolet light uh, lithography, the thing that makes it so innovative is the wavelength. In order to be able to create this pattern um, when, the, when the transistors on the chip are so close to each other, the only way to do that is to, is to have a light source with a really small wavelength. And right. so that's what ASML did. They found a way using molten tin and lasers to create an – it's called extreme ultraviolet. It's basically, it's basically crazy thin. The, the wavelength of that light source.
0: Is it re- replicable? I mean, could could someone else do it?
2: Um, no one, to my knowledge, is 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 even close right now. So there's there's basically uh, three lithography companies, and ASML has eighty five percent market share of lithography, which are these light sources. Right. Okay. Uh, 85% market share of lithography has a hundred percent market share of extreme ultraviolet lithography. No one else in the world is doing it. Um, the only other company that tried was Nikon and, and they abandoned all efforts. This, this was thought to be impossible. This was thought to be impossible. Right. So the uh, uh, kind of the way
1: I'm thinking about it from an investment perspective, yeah, you know, the tech, the tech sounds awesome. And, but the way that people have to, you know, get trained with this stuff, The way that uh, I guess the best example is Intuitive Surgical, where all the doctors get trained with this. That seems very moaty, and do you think that gives them a competitive advantage? Where uh, the the people that are getting educated have to learn how to use this stuff, and then it's like, all right, we're not going to switch. There's just giant switching costs here.
2: I think, I think, I think, I think there's a moat to the companies that you you just said, Intuitive Surgical and ASML. but they can't hide behind that moat, right? Like they have right. to continue to innovate. They have to keep moving. They have to keep adapting. They have to stay ahead of the competition. They can't just rest on their laurels. So, um, I mean, we can talk more about my, my thoughts on moats if you want, but if you're asking me if, if I believe, this is my opinion, that intuitive surgical and ASML have moats, yes, I do, but I think they have to, they have to work really, really hard to maintain them. They got to keep digging. <laughs> uh, key, the yeah. To use it, exactly right. They got to keep digging.
0: Then I guess we'll spin into moats then. Do you think, uh, how would you define a moat? It feels like the it feels like how people look at moats is changing now because what you used to see is just something that's <laughs> undisruptible, you know, sort of a Berkshire type uh, or the Buffett model of a moat. But now it feels like the people that are innovating the fastest are the companies that are doing the best and you can't really pin down yeah, a moat on it.
1: Yeah. Cause uh, you know, I, we watched stuff with like Pat Dorsey. He's kind of the moat expert, I
2: think. And yeah, he, wrote, he wrote that book that I mentioned. Yeah. The, the little book of building wealth. Yeah. I love
1: him. So he said, and I kind of thought this was right, that technology isn't necessarily a moat, but could that evolve over time? I don't know. That's kind of a tough question, but yeah.
2: So, um, is the technology itself a moat? Uh, I don't, I'll tell you, I'll say this, the technology itself is impressive. The technology itself, uh, in a lot of these companies is, is mind bending It makes my hair hurt, uh, to try to, I mean, like I said, I, I reached out to, to PhDs, people that work in the industry for decades, decades. It's the only way that I could understand it myself. So it, it did make my hair hurt. Um, but if, is it a moat itself? I don't think so. I think, I think moving is the moat and adapting is the moat. So here's uh, my, my thoughts on moats um, have evolved, but I've always been somewhat skeptical of moats. So I published a book in 2013, and in that, in that book, I do mention that it's harder and harder to find sustainable moats in the internet age right? Because Amazon could just come in and disrupt you. And I said that. I said, you know, one of the questions that I ask in, in that book, I, I, I share a brief checklist in that book. And one of the questions is, can you be Amazon, right? So all the way back in 2013 or before, because it took me at least a year to write the book. So in 2012, I guess, and maybe earlier, I was questioning the durability of modes. Um, so that was 2013, my book came out. And then a few, le- a few years later, I read Complexity Investing. Uh, it was a 40-page white paper by the, by the team at NZS Capital, um, Brad Slingerlin, Britton Johns. Um, and that is the single paper that has influenced my investing philosophy and really how I look at the world more than anything else I've ever read, probably. And the, the paper basically argues that legacy modes are not as strong in the digital age. Um, they could actually become uh, a vulnerability uh, in the digital age. These these sort of legacy modes, just based around pricing power and like using your strength to like squeeze your suppliers to death or something like that. Like you know, using your leverage, not not treating all of your stakeholders well, and just trying to trying to eke out every every point of price you can from them. Right, and so he says they, they argue that in the digital age, that sort of legacy moat framework, which is really just all about trying to trying to increase prices whenever you can, it's not going to work, and it's a vulnerability. Rather, they think that adaptability, which is what we've been talking about, uh, and what they call positive non-zero sum, are the two strongest moats in the world today. And positive non-zero sum is just basically um, creating as much or even more value for your customers and your key stakeholders as you do for yourself. Uh, And so I I basically adopted that hook, line, and sinker. It just really resonated with me. Uh, And then, so so I must have read that in like 2016 for the first time or or, or something like that, maybe 2017. Uh, And then like a month ago, I had and Ray on, on Motley Fool Live. And Tiernan follows like 300 tech companies. Uh, he's been writing on tech for over 20 years or something like that. Um, he is the author of the technologyletter.com. He's absolutely wonderful, knows tech inside and out. And and on my interview show, he said, and I quote, there are no moats. And then he goes on to explain, companies just have to keep moving and keep adapting. So just like the stuff that NZS Capital is arguing. Um, so I, I do think that that adaptability is the most important moat. I don't think there are no moats, like Tiernan says. Um, I think all of the companies we've discussed, ASML and LAM Research, and and we mentioned uh, Illumina Intuitive. and yeah. Intuitive Surgical and Taiwan Semiconductor, I, I think they all have moats, but I don't think they can hide behind that legacy moat. They have to They have to constantly innovate, constantly adapt, keep moving forward. Um, if they want longevity, they have to go out and actively find new growth streams and build new moats and build new castle walls over time. Um, I, I think about it like a boxer, honestly, because I, I, I like the sport of of boxing. Um, so you can be the strongest boxer in the world and the hardest puncher in the world. But if you just stand in the middle of the ring and let your competitor just take shots at you, you're Either eventually you're going to get hit hard and knocked out, or you're going to get hit too many by, by too many small blows, and over time those small blows are going to chip away at you, and and knock you out and knock you down. So either way, whether it's one big blow or just chipping away over time, if you don't move, you just stay in the center of that ring, you're going to have a short career. No matter how strong you are today, no matter how hard you punch today. But if you look at the boxers with some of the best longevity, like a Floyd Mayweather or Bernard Hopkins, he was fighting in his fifties uh, or a Manny Pacquiao. They're constantly moving around the ring. So they can't get hit.
0: Okay, that's, yeah, a, yeah, that's the, a good analogy. The good uh, example of that is when you look at the largest companies by decade over the last 70 or so years, it's changing. They just always change. Yeah. Change.
1: I guess. Yeah. Maybe the difference today is, you know, someone like, I mean, I think Costco or someone definitely has a moat, but you know they have one, but they're also pleasing continually pleasing their customers. So it's like, you have to have both. You can't just have the moat and then just exploit it. Maybe like a century ago,
0: you could do that. But nowadays yeah, you gotta continually please your customers. If, if they raise that hot dog and soda deal, they could ruin everything.
2: <laughs> that's true, it's like a buck 50 or something. Uh, that, that's right, they have to keep pleasing their customers. And so that's that positive non-zero sum, right? Take care of all your stakeholders. And if you do that, you, you know, everything will work out for the, for the company.
0: Okay. Should we hit the wrap up questions? Yeah, I got nothing else in my mouth. I think we covered it. So. Okay. What is one financial saying that you disagree with?
2: Uh, okay. So uh, I'll, 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 I'll give you two. So, so the first one is uh, Warren Buffett said something like invest in a company, an idiot could run because one day it will be run by an idiot. Uh, that's just something that I disagree with on a cellular level because I think people build great businesses. Um, I actually think leadership um, is is often the most important quality I look for because the founder or the CEO, they set the mission, they set the purpose, they determine the business model, they determine the strategic direction, they set the corporate culture, um, they determine when to push the growth pedal to the floor, when it's appropriate to throttle growth back, they determine the balance sheet strategy, They choose to either pursue profitable growth or growth at any cost. They build teams, they allocate human capital, they allocate financial capital. I mean, the list goes on and on, right? They, 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 they determine how they're going to treat their stakeholders. Um, They're the ones that do the adapting, the innovating um, so that they, so that they do remain relevant and that they do have moats going forward. So yeah, I, I, I don't agree with invest in a company an idiot could run because one day it could be run by an idiot. If I'm invested in a company personally and an idiot takes over, that would, that would be a reason for me to sell and I, and I rarely ever sell. Um, the other one is this whole idea behind margin of safety in the traditional sense. Um, I've always intuitively struggled with the idea of buy at a discount and then sell as it approaches your estimate of fair value. Like you, you even start to get out before it reaches your, your estimate of fair value. And um, so back in 2016, I published an article for The Fool and I said, um, I'll read this quote, shareholder returns or wealth creation will be determined more by the size of a company's moat than by the size of the margin of safety. In other words, for a high quality business, a sustainable moat is the margin of safety end quote. So it's that sustainable moat. It's got to be sustainable though. Um, And then in March, 2018, so about three years ago, I guess, um, I wrote about how there's tons of research showing that quality businesses outperform the market over time, despite trading at high PE multiples. So they traded these optically high multiples, uh, but they still beat the market. So I concluded um, that means that the high multiples investors Pay for quality are not high enough. In other words, investors could have paid a higher multiple and still beat the market. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I just, I, I, I just think that margin of safety in the traditional sense is is misguided. I think the margin of safety comes from that moat, comes from that adaptability, comes from that innovation, and from the management team.
0: Yeah, no. yeah, more of margin of safety in the business instead yeah. of margin of safety in the salon. Yeah, I mean, we, I, mean, I think we talked
1: with you. Uh, a little while ago about how the intangibles can kind of like, if you're using book value now, that's really not, you know, the traditional margin of safety, you know, discounted book values, tough stuff since like the 1980s, that has really kind of maybe even misled
2: people. Um, totally. If you're just screening for book value, because, you know, we've, the, our economy has shifted from one of, 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 Assets, physical assets like machinery and equipment, and you know, industrial manufacturing type of assets, to more software and services. And in the older economy, the manufacturer, in manufacturing, industrial economy businesses invested through the balance sheet. Um, but now, in the software and services businesses, uh, businesses are investing through the income statement. Um, you know, R and D, uh, research and development, or sales and marketing. Um, and so, those are intangibles. They don't show up as tangible uh, capital. And so, if you're using book value, you're in, you're, you're possibly getting misled. Yes.
1: Okay. And the last question here: What is one piece of advice you have for anyone considering a career in the investing world, just anywhere in the investing world?
2: You know, I used to a good piece of advice I used to give people was to take a speed reading class because um, my dad um, convinced me to take a speed reading class was I, when I was in middle school and it, it, it helped me read faster. I wouldn't say that I'm a speed reader today, but I'm a fast reader today and I can get through a lot of information quickly. Uh, the reason I say I used to give that advice is because now there's so many ways, uh, to learn about investing that doesn't involve reading podcasts. For example, y'all's awesome podcast. Um, and so, I think if I had to give advice today, it would be. Um, so, so I speak with a lot of students because uh, I speak at you know, I, I speak at universities a lot, um, and I, our new analyst, the Motley Fool, and one of the things that that I that I notice without fail is the first time a new. Uh, analyst analyzes a business for the first time, they fall in love with that business. They fall in love with that business. And and that's because um, they have nothing to compare it to if, if, if they're really beginners. And then the other reason is because they feel this sense of accomplishment, as they should, because they just spent weeks or months studying a business for the first time. And that's fun. And that's an, that's an enlightening process. And so they just get very excited about what they're learning. And it's the only business they know because they're beginners. And so they want it to be great, right? They want it to be great. So they fall in love with this business. Um, and it may turn out that they, did, that, that they did identify a great business on their first try. But the truth is, um, there are just not that many great businesses out there. I think there's you know, only 4% of stocks have accounted for all of the net gains in the stock market going back 100 years or something like that. Um, And so my best advice, I think, is to not form a strong opinion on whether you like a business or not until you've studied 25 or 50 or 100 businesses across different industries. And then once you've done research on at least 25 businesses, then you can go back and rank them by conviction. That's an exercise that helped me out, um, and I think it can help out others too. That's perfect. Yeah, I think that we all i mean i did it <laughs> uh, i did it we I, it's without fail I, yeah. I did it everyone does it because it's so new and you get so excited about it yeah
0: definitely okay well i think that's all the questions we have john
2: thank you for joining us had a blast thank you all for having me this was great
0: all right thanks again to john Rotanti for coming on very much enjoyed the discussion but we are moving to topics now um And I guess we can just rattle them back and forth. So the first one you have is very interesting. Sort of the banter of Fintwit the last week.
1: Yeah, this has been the biggest story. We're going to close the loop. Uh, That's an inside joke for a few people uh, on Bill Huang. Hope I'm saying that right. And I hope I say Archigo's right. Uh, If you're laughing, that's okay. But you know who I'm talking about. News has been slowly leaking out over the past week or so on the Bill Huang or Archigo's blowup. He was a, quote, you know, Tiger Cub from the Tiger Global, who was uh, one of the managers at Tiger Asia in 2001. His strategy, uh, as we know now, is concentration, target heavily shorted stocks or short stocks um, as well, and then juice returns with leverage. And then I put here Bro down, but... The BroDown part didn't really happen this time. Um, so, for example, in the past, the VW short squeeze, I believe that was either, in, it was like in 2008 or maybe 2011. So, there was allegations there, or sorry, that really blew him up. I think he was short there. And then there's allegations of an insider trading scheme that led him to return money to investors from Tiger Asia. After that, he started Archegos Capital. And I believe they started with like 200 million dollars, so a good amount. But then they grew that to I, I, it might have been 10 billion.
0: Well, they didn't grow it. They well, they it. grew some. <laughs>
1: they grew some of it. Yeah, they're putting up fantastic returns. But you know, sometimes leverage, as we know, can mask average returns and make them look fantastic. And his preferred investing method was to partner with prime brokers. So this is Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, the investment banks to do total return swaps. There's been a lot of confusion out there, and I'm not going to go down into the nitty-gritty because I, I don't understand that, how it all specifically works at that level. But what are total return swaps? Because I think, I mean, we're, we were all confused unless you were like a derivatives trader, uh, which most of us listening, I think, aren't. Uh, so essentially, a total return swap gives Archigos or sorry, Archegos gave gives money to a prime broker who then invests in the stock but then Archegos gives the prime broker a fee. So And then in return, the prime broker will give back any returns that the stock has or Archegos is required to pay more if the stock loses money. So basically they're paying them money to buy giant blocks of stock for them and they can do it on margin for you. It kind of streamlines the process, I guess, is the way. And there's there's and, a lot of other complications. And Go ahead. it
0: doesn't show up as you being the shareholder. So Archegos, no one knew, right? I'm getting that right? You
1: see that under, say, Goldman Sachs holding it. Yeah, right. so it makes it more of a dark, it's dark money or whatever, but it's not like evil or anything. It's just kind of hidden uh, from, say, SEC filings or something like that. So... There's some other complications, but that's kind of the simplest way, I think, for us as non-derivatives traders would understand. Uh, but it is an easy way to add leverage with secrecy. And this is kind of the problem that happened, where the prime brokers, he went to six of them, and they may or may not have known that they were all doing total return swaps for him. Some of them may have known, some of them may have not. But that means that he was able to get these levered up positions Way higher are to have way higher of an exposure to single stocks than people otherwise probably would have let him. So, this led him to have 68% of the GSX, which I believe is some sort of Chinese company. I'm not sure about that, Uh, what exactly it does. I think it's something with education technology. So, he had 68% of the float of GSX, 29% of the float of Viacom. So, you can see why Viacom was skyrocketing. The last few months and then uh, they were part of the downfall as well. So they ended up having a $10 billion stake in Viacom. A lot of this was on leverage. The total amounts of what was leverage and what was actual capital are unknown. But when Viacom announced a $3 billion equity raise, the stock fell, putting Archegos into a death spiral. So at five times leverage, you know, all you need to blow up is a 15% drop. Um, And that's where we are today. He went from not necessarily nothing. I think maybe he's, I think he did start from nothing, you know, nothing. Like, he didn't come from a wealthy family, so I think he kind of made his way throughout the industry, and then he got to be worth, on paper, like $21 billion in a short amount of time, and then lost it all in one day. Kind of crazy. Or maybe five days. Something like that.
0: I saw a tweet today that says, if you lose whatever it was, $20 billion in net worth within a week. You didn't earn that money. You borrowed that money.
1: Uh, I mean, it's
0: It's hard to do that with earned money. Um, But how much ended up coming out of the whole liquidation? It was north of $100 billion.
1: Well, that was a rumor of the total losses from the Financial Times. That hasn't been confirmed or anything like that. So that's just – I think they got a source. Um, That number might – may or may not be correct. But we do know that it's at least – tens of billions of dollars. And ArcaGos had exposure to, I think, $8,200 billion of these stocks. Maybe they lost it all. But lessons here. What do you think?
0: It's nothing new, but I don't – Leverage just – It feels so dumb to lever up well, on that's- something that there's no guaranteed rate of return. Yeah. Or, or-, or like you don't have – I mean it's a, it's a stock –
1: like, yeah, I who can, cares what the VAR is? I mean, he wasn't even. He was basically just yelling. as he was basically like a Wall Street bets trader. But yeah, I don't know. Like, you, whatever, people that are anti leverage in general, I think you should, you know, you probably own a mortgage, so you have leverage or not alone. So, but, you know, and some maybe a 1.2 times levered portfolio or 1.6 times levered portfolio, depending on your strategy, can be fine. But five times in a concentrated basket, that's. And tough.
0: Yeah, and the and the other part is like, leverage, in general, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. Um, it can kind of propel growth, but if you have like, you have reliable cash flows, that's fine. But there's true, no true. reliable cash flow. Yeah, it was on just a basket. stock. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, it's not that surprising. He blew up.
1: Well, what's interesting is that he could have gotten out, but he just kept like. It's so he it's yeah <laughs> like he he put up. Okay, so say he had 15% ca- – like of the 100% of the basket he had, uh, uh, try to visualize this, say 85% of it was debt at the start and 15% of it was pure capital. If the basket doubled as it did, then you have 200 – like then that leverage is covered. You can basically – you're in the clear and your returns are phenomenal. But the thing is he kept doubling down like he was at a roulette table and it seems like it was like a trip, like a quadruple – Double down at a roulette table with so much money. Um,
0: One more year, and he could have he could have made it. He well, got out.
1: <laughs> it's like it is like at the roulette table where there's no like most people you know you can build a big whatever pile right if you get lucky a few times. I mean a coin flip might hit five in a row. You know what I mean? What you call? But the thing is, there's no like rational way you got to that point. So there's no. It's not like. It was just all luck to, you know, kind of like there's yeah. no reason to stop because you were taking insane risk to get to the $20 billion that – I mean, you, you kind <sighs> of wow, believe why, why, why can't it go to 40 But then eventually the people that are investing like that or, I mean, gambling like that lose it all. But before we move on to the next part, what are the thoughts on the TSRs, total or –
0: uh, I get that total TRSs.
1: TRSs right? is total return swaps.
0: Uh, I don't know. I mean, it seems like a interesting concept, but used in the wrong way, it's probably not. I'm sure there is utility for it, but like all things on Wall Street, that utility gets it levered. gets
1: overdone. Someone finds a way to overdo it. Too
0: much of a good thing.
1: The what I thought. Yeah, I mean, it seems fine. Also, if you're maybe there's a reason to use it as a manager, but. If you're someone that uses total return swaps, maybe, like, I don't know, like, why? You have to pay the fee to them anyways, but I guess it's a good way to use leverage. Although the funny part was Goldman basically getting out early, right? They were kind of, and none of this is confirmed because no one's going to come out and say it, that they're the ones that you know, broke it and basically said, we're going to sell the $10 billion block here.
0: It's just – this is this is Margin Call.
1: I know. It is Margin Call, the movie, at a lower scale than the entire U.S. economy. But, yeah. And then the – I mean, the funny thing was they came out and downgraded the rival investment bank from Japan like the next day. Nomura. Uh, no, Nomura. Uh, I hope I'm getting these names right. But they downgraded them the next day. Goldman Sachs themselves, which – that is, they're not afraid to. Um, they're not afraid to get out. I guess is the interesting thing there, because they supposedly all came on a Zoom call together and they were, like, I don't know who proposed it, to do the you know selling of it in an orderly fashion. And then on Friday, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs just said, "Yeah, no, we're going to sell the ten billion that we have."
0: The, the, the Morgan analyst was like, "Hey, Goldman, will you stick around after the call maybe to discuss a few things?"
1: So we got to discuss that bond deal. And they wink. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. Well, yeah, that's not. I don't know. Lesson I learned. Hope, not hope
1: it's management. not. I mean, I hope it's not a long term capital management deal where it turns into a systemic thing. Uh, yeah. But it's a
0: uh, feel bad for the limited partners. Well, I guess maybe they should have known better. But all right, yeah. um, my. Topic or one of my topics uh, is the Spotify acquisition of Locker Room, and so they, this week they acquired Locker Room for I think fifty million dollars. That's what Wall Street Journal reported, with potential to have it be eighty million if certain incentives are hit. And they got that from some insider. Uh, okay, uh, but that wasn't like the official disclosure. And then uh, anyway, if you don't know what it is, it's basically just a live audio app for sports discussions. So like Andre Vidala came on one time. There'll be athletes that come in. People can, like, reflect after a basketball game or something like that.
1: And some people do, like, hybrid announcing type deal, right? Kind of where they're not the official broadcast, but they have a discussion going on during the game.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of ways to use it. But it it was mostly designed for sports. And so Spotify's now acquired the tech. Well, technically they bought the parent company. I wouldn't even say it's a parent company. It's, like, 12 engineers and some other people in the company as well. But basically they're all known for locker room. Um, And they're planning to roll out the tech to pretty much all other areas on Spotify. So podcasts, artists, songwriters, musicians, athletes, uh, they can all still use that. I think listeners could also create their own as well. Um, So they are going or they're trying to go social. uh, But basically, they've now gotten live audio. And so Uh,
1: people are making fun of it for, oh, they invented radio. Well, yeah. I mean, but the thing is like. Yeah, we're po- we do podcasts, so it's, we think we're pretty biased towards the growth of podcasts, but I mean this is a minuscule part of Spotify's business.
0: And to the people that think like why would anyone do this instead of a social platform like Twitter, and right. we, I had this sort of discussion on Spaces, which is uh, – well, for a lot of our listeners on here, they're not all on Twitter. Yeah. And so we have a large audience that would be engaged that aren't on Twitter. I know in the Twitterverse, it can kind of turn into a bubble. You feel like everyone's on there, but they're not. Um, I mean, what's the user count? 350 million to like.
1: No, it's a. How
0: much DAUs does Twitter have? Twitter
1: has 190 million. Yeah. yeah, Spotify probably has a little. It's tough because they do monthly active users, but I think a lot of those are daily active users, at least if I'm calling myself. Uh, The. You, th- I mean, you think it's probably, uh, I don't know, 275 million maybe daily active users. It's tough to tell. They have a larger audience, and it's more, well, I know uh, Twitter's pretty global. Yeah, I mean, but it's, I don't know. What are do, your thoughts? Do you
0: like the choice to acquire their way into live audio instead of building it themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, $50 million is, it's not nothing, but it's not.
0: It's not a ton for them.
1: Yeah, it'll be fine. It's.
0: I okay, yeah, Like almost it's, $3 billion for a year.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've kind of become not very bullish on this stuff just because there's too many variables that have to come into play to get, you know, like you have to have everyone come in at the same time. You have to have everyone know what the topic is beforehand. Most of the times I go in and listen to one of these things, I'm like,
0: what is going on? I'll so take the, I'll take the flip side of that and you I'll think? say, well, for, okay. Yeah, for podcasts, I'm not sure it makes that much sense uh, because, you know, it just doesn't. It's different. Yeah, podcasts, they're designed to have a little bit of structure, whereas these should be sort of free-flowing conversations. But in terms of engaging with uh, artists, I think this is a really good platform. Yeah, it could be. You've got, I mean, it's sort of a backdoor way to subscription social media.
1: Through, well, they, through... Because through. they
0: start as the music platform. Yeah. And now let's say this works out and people are engaging with artists that they love, musicians, songwriters, they're asking questions, they're getting a chance to maybe live concert or something like that. that. That feature is kind of social and everyone's talked about, well, why doesn't Twitter go subscription? Now Spotify's done it, but by going through music first.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of ways this could happen and... Yeah, there's just scenarios there's, yeah. where, I mean, it, uh, I don't know. Every, it seems like it's just a kind of a hedge in case the stuff totally becomes the new thing where they have a asset now that can compete with it if everyone goes to these type of things. But if it totally turns out a dud, like Clubhouse is like nothing. Twitter spaces stays super niche or something like that then it's not going to change the long-term trajectory. So, I mean, God. as a shareholder, I'm happy with the acquisition for sure.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess the other question then is, like, how is this the quickest that you've seen sort of a new phenomenon, like Clubhouse in this regard, uh, get crushed? I and I know it hasn't, crushed. It hasn't been it... crushed yet, but the oh, fact but... that every service is now pouring on the exact same – clubhouse basically as like a bolt on feature to their platform i have a hard time believing that clubhouse will be able to sustain that user base. maybe i'm wrong well the thing
1: is clubhouse they're gonna have to get creative they're gonna have to do something else to keep the people there they need to they they gotta really be i don't know if it's nimble but there's a lot of pressure on them i think over the next year to come up with a differentiated platform because – It got copied fast. It's pretty easy to copy. Yeah, they got to have – I don't know what the way is. Maybe they got a good team over there, but they got to come up with a way to differentiate the product. It can't just be, we got celebrities here or something. I don't know. It's not really a product.
0: Here's the other thing I've been thinking about is when you have – if you grow too fast and you're too popular and you're too exciting, I think that's like – you're almost building your own grave. Yeah, you're almost digging your own grave, right? Like you're building this gold mine for someone to be like, "Oh, shoot, thanks for letting us know that we should be doing this." Whereas, yeah. like, Spotify was such an unattractive business for so long.
1: Well, it wasn't big at all. It, it only hit 20 million subscribers, like I don't know, in 2015 or something like that. No, it wasn't that small. But I think that's 2016. The they had 120. Oh, I'm looking at I'm looking at it wrong year then.
0: But it, I think the the point is, I mean, yeah. like. They everyone was like, "You're just going to be under the heel of the labels the whole time." Like it was so unattractive to be in that position that they were able to amass 400, 350 million users with without people paying that much attention. I mean, I guess Apple. Nah. But think about Apple nah. dropped the ball on it. If Apple not, dropped not the ball, lack on it. of effort, but
1: yeah, and then it's different. It's different. It's different. Social's different than like on demand media. Yeah. I think it's a little different, but. I do still think you're correct that Clubhouse they've been so successful and it's built up a lot of momentum, but that momentum can stop fast and you can and you can crash.
0: All right, what's your next topic?
1: Okay, so I saw this good analysis from Unhedged. I'm not sure exactly what this is. I just saw it as a link through Twitter. They're talking about young software companies over-earning their free cash flow margin. So the the big question they had was who has been over-earning. So the way this works is if you have a – say you're a SaaS company or just a software company in general and you sell su- basically subscriptions or it could be multi-year deals where you get money up front but you have to recognize the revenue according to accounting standards over the time period of the contract. That means you have to defer revenue and put it into this liability thing mm-hmm. on your balance sheet and then you know realize that deferred revenue – so it makes your earnings, if you're growing quickly, it makes your earnings look a little worse than they are. But free cash flow always stays the same because you add back that deferred revenue. You can look at it on the income statement and balance sheet. It's hard to stay in audio form. But the key is you want to make sure that a company, even if they're generating a lot of free cash flow in a certain period, it still has a business where over the long term, even if they stop growing quickly, are still going to be, you know, have strong profit margins. Um, so free cash flow, the definition of that is just operating cash flow minus CapEx. And you can then take out stock-based compensation, whatever your style is. And their back test, which I don't think it was, they did like a, probably a few dozen companies. I don't think they did it like as a scientific study. So their back test said that it was a simple gross margin minus operating cost plus stock-based compensation minus CapEx is what long-term free cash flow should converge to so again that's taking out you know you're at basically gross profit you subtract operating costs you can add back stock based compensation but really when you're doing free cash flow you should either both add or both subtract from these two variables Eh, and then you could
0: take portion out but yeah
1: you can take some out yeah just do it equally throughout these two different metrics and then you subtract capex um, and that should converge to long-term free cash flow. So the reason you'd want to do this is you can check if, you know, say company A, their free cash flow margin is a lot higher than this gross margin minus operating costs plus stock-based compensation minus CapEx thing. If it's a lot higher, then you might say, okay, well, maybe their long-term, you know, operating margin or profitability isn't as good as we think, or if it's a lower okay, maybe it will be higher once they finally transition their business model or things smooth out over time. Over time, So who was over-earning according to this method? Zoom video, CrowdStrike, ServiceNow. There were a few examples they chose. The similarity was they were all growing quickly right now. So, yeah, the businesses are doing great, but maybe that free cash flow margin over the long term, you know, it still looks like these companies likely have strong, you know, profit margins, but it's maybe not as good as these current few quarters make them look to be. What yes. are your thoughts? Does this make sense?
0: Uh, I'm probably not following, but so when you say over-earning, you mean that those
1: short-term free cash flow margins look better than they will over the long-term uh, Okay. based on- Amplified deferred revenue, so if you're growing quickly, uh, right, right. you have a ton of upfront deferred revenue, yeah. but then when you start
0: growing slower, how long are those subscriptions that's like that's my thing is like if they've got if they just took a bulk of deferred revenue, but that uh, those subscriptions i mean, they purposely cap them out like if someone you're not gonna let someone sign up for a ten year contract, you know what I mean, so I don't think. Like let's say the max is two or three years that you can sign up for. It's well,
1: I don't. That, that doesn't really matter. It's just the so it's yeah just, because they
0: have to re they have to resub at whatever that higher cost is later. Well,
1: I mean, it's just I, I don't think that necessarily matters here, where it's all about how much deferred revenue they have and how fast that is growing versus it. So it's just
0: yeah, but the deferred revenue uh, if that's only expected over the next two years or whatever, that life cycle's shorter.
1: No, I know it it doesn't matter what that life cycle is. It's all about how fast they're growing revenue where, say, Zoom growing like at 100%, they're, you know, they're going to have a lot more upfront revenue versus their revenue that wasn't growing, if you know what I mean. So that bucket of like stuff that was there the year before almost where once they mature... The deferred revenue as a percentage of revenue is going to go down. So, on the flip side, if say like a company has a few quarters of revenue declines, it can over-earn on income, right? Yeah, I understand. So, like when Activision Blizzard in twenty eighteen had that slowdown, so that's why this it really can it can make either net income look better or worse. I understand. Than it the,
0: d- yeah, I understand how those two differ. But if they if it's not like this deferred revenue extends out ten years. Oh, I know. So I think I – I, I just don't think it's as big of a deal. I don't think there's a huge – I don't think there's going to be a huge skew in the over-earning. I don't think it's going to – Well, well it was pretty – I 15%. mean – 15%.
1: Some of it was, yeah. I, I can't remember what the numbers were, but I mean some of them were pretty stark. And when you're putting in your model up like, all right, this company's going to have 40% free cash flow margins, maybe it won't. You know? But they if, do.
0: Well, in and this guess,
1: time period yeah. – no, they do currently.
0: Yeah, but I, yeah.
1: So the key is that currently the free cash flow margin looks better than what this, their theory of what they've kind of back-tested where, say, like Adobe and Autodesk, they're a little more mature. They went through and, yeah, so free cash flow margin at first, ah, it was either a lot better or a lot worse. But over time, it converges on it once the company matures, these two variables.
0: Yeah, but that's where the, that's where the cycle matters, right?
1: Not no because if so, you're deferred
0: yeah. revenue, whatever. Let's say you have right now. Zoom has fifty percent free cash flow margins. I know we should move on, but and someone has to re up in a year. That uh, they, they might have recognized the cash early.
1: Yeah, but it's all it's all about it'll just new. be done in a year? It's all about new, dif- like it's not. And about, it'll happen again in a year. I know, but it's all about. So say like. The new contracts are coming in. It's all about new versus like steady state. Because if you have a bunch, if you're growing quicker, free cash flow is going to look larger versus, say, if you're growing at 100%, it can inflate those free cash flow margins versus if you're growing at 10%, where it's going to converge more on your operating income. Because all the I, new yeah. revenue, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that's Again, where it can converge.
0: Yeah. Uh, I guess let's just move on because we don't want it to go too long. But... Yeah, I understand that there will be that sort of reversion.
1: So that's the whole point. You don't want to look at a current quarter's free cash flow margin and think this is what they can have.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, super high deferred revenues are obviously kind of a concern.
1: Well, it's not a concern. It's just you got to track kind of what, you know, what the actual expenses are.
2: Okay.
0: All right. Well, I guess this is a hot water then. Uh, Do you have anything else on that or? No. Okay. Okay. Paris Hilton is long Bitcoin. Uh, Saw it on CNBC, right? Yeah, and great analysis. The only gripe, the only gripe that I have with this was uh, it's not on the Paris Hilton side, but everyone's response was every every person without a thesis that owns Bitcoin was like, "Oh gosh, here we go, this is the bubble." I'm like, "How's
1: it's all? Stupid. How is her
0: thesis any different than your thesis?" Like,
1: oh, it's all. There's sp- no. Yeah you all it's all stupid i don't know it's
0: all speculate like the speculation's the same yeah i mean well, I, if you're if she's right you're right
1: yeah it's all it's <laughs> a, i mean i i it's all stupid i don't know it's so there's no it's is. i like the kind of look i resp- i like just because someone likes bitcoin doesn't mean i don't like them and i respect people's their intelligence there's so many smart people that like bitcoin but i just think it's so dumb it's 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 This stuff is so – this stuff specifically is so – I can't get over it. I just laugh whenever I see it. It's ridiculous.
0: All right. What's your next topic point?
1: Okay. Talk about good CEOs or, I don't know, maybe the number one good – or uh, talked about CEO in 2020. Am I correct
0: on this? He's a legend for sure.
1: Yeah. So Trevor Milton – has sold 49 million dollars of his Nikola stock. Congrats. He is now with Adam Newman. Adam Newman I think sold 700 million so he's not up to that level yet, but you know, he's selling his stock with no remorse. Nikola is now down 61% from June of 2020, but it still has a market cap of 5 billion dollars. So I mean, I don't know. <laughs> There's no analysis to be had there. <laughs> uh, but the only serious question I have is how many other Nikolas are out there. Because I honestly think they're maybe not the same size, but there might be a few dozen. Well, if or they're just Sound different.
0: Motors, for starters. Yeah. 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 Well, that one's pretty big too, right? The Hard Hat Edge.
1: Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> the hard hat tell.
1: That was the best. All. I mean, we were making fun of CNBC for having Paris Hilton on no, that was the best clip of the past few months was that guy in the hard hat.
0: She's probably got better returns than uh, whoever the Lordstown <laughs> CEO is. But I don't know. It, uh, yeah, it's mind-blowing that some of these things are still worth $5 billion. You, the, I love that there's these fake investor relations pages being built on Twitter now. For, oh for right, all right. these frauds right and, yeah and like the nicola ir page whenever someone tweet the fake nicola ir page they're always like please take this down this makes us look bad
1: like yeah <laughs> dude well, it's crazy that uh, like two years ago the people in my like senior engineering class we all could have gotten together and said look we're gonna just make some cool like
0: this stuff we're gonna do a rendering
1: we could do we could have all made some renderings like as a team and we could have Found some spokesperson and gone out at a, tw- a five billion dollar valuation, maybe a billion. I don't know. We all could have been rich. The twenty five of us. I don't even know if you need the engineering degree. Well, to make the renderings, Did renders, Trevor you Milton, kinda have do. One? no, but I mean the team. I mean, you may, I mean, you don't need necessarily an engineering degree, but those things. It's not like you need Adobe. <laughs> well, it's more like SolidWorks, but yeah, similar stuff. yeah. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, this is kind of old news, but uh, have you seen all those Invesco QQQ ads on March yeah. Madness?
1: It's, uh, you can tell that the NASDAQ's doing well.
0: Isn't, doesn't it seem like a, I don't know, it feels like you should be able to advertise securities.
1: Mm, you no, know, it's a fine line. There's actually like they, I think there's a rule into some of these type of ETFs where you're, uh, you have to add like, two percent of your revenue has to be spent on advertising but it is strange to see these type of things advertised where it's like yeah i'm investing
0: in growth
1: i'm investing in innovation it's uh it's tough but hey the qqq has uh i can check right now how much aum it has uh they're 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 doing quite quite well so i don't know what are your thoughts
0: I don't know. It frustrates me. It seems bad to have to advertise the security. Yeah. It should just track what the security... The se- whatever the security tracks, the price should track over time. You don't need to advertise to get more buyers.
1: Yeah, but you're competing against other Nasdaq ETFs. So I don't know. They got $155 I guess, billion yeah. in e- I guess, AUM. I M. ETFs what is their are a little fee? different than pure Oh, yeah, yeah. If someone's advertising their stock, that is a giant red flag. But... <laughs>
0: I mean, it's being done sort of inadvertently now. Let's see, what's
1: their what's their fee? What's their fee? One hundred fifty-five billion. Oh, management fee. Net expenses are point two percent. That's pretty good. Pretty good business.
0: Yeah. It's Not much to do. No, it isn't. All right. <laughs> what's your? Uh, this is your last topic right?
1: Yeah. Well, what is it? Oh, yeah. We got another spec. Oh, I saw this one. I. Uh, I don't know. I think I saw tweets. Yeah, I was doing my research. I had to put some stuff out there. But what is... uh, Oh, wait, no, no. What is it? It's AeroFarms. Um, It's going public via SPAC. Now, this one, it is interesting. So what is AeroFarms? It uses, quote, proprietary data science-driven technology to address the $1.9 trillion total addressable market opportunity for leafy greens with a sustainable indoor growing solution. You can get this highly differentiated business for $1.2 billion in value on the NASDAQ coming soon. Enterprise value is like $860 million. And get this, it is only trading at 2.6 times 2025 estimated sales and only 10.6 times estimated 2025 EBITDA. Are you in? God. This stuff, dude. The, do you,
0: you shouldn't be allowed to do that.
1: SPACs, it's a loophole. They're going to close the loophole soon, but these...
0: Don't they? Don't they? Rec- like SPAC's your five-year local. estimate? I guarantee. I'm willing to bet. I'd be willing to bet good money that your estimate is completely off. Oh
1: 25. well, we've seen the specs that went out last summer and fall. They've had to do real earnings reports now, and they've totally revised once now that they have oh, to be. And they tank. Yeah, a lot of them are down like fifty percent. Mean, yeah, if you're gonna do a spec, they uh, yeah. Can you spec
0: without? Being overly promotional (laughs) or is it like written in the rules? Well, the whole point
1: of doing a SPAC is that you can be over-promotional so that leads teams that want to be promotional to choose the SPAC because it gives them that freedom. i got some other quotes from here. Aerofarm's sensor network feeds a vast library of data collected over 15 years of operations, allowing the company to understand plants at unprecedented levels and solve agricultural-related supply chains problem. Another quote. This is my favorite. The Ag Stack system enables a fully connected farm. This stuff isn't software, Gosh. guys. I you know, I hope they're right. Like if they do what they say they're gonna do, it would be awesome. It would help, you know, with climate change, with these vertical farms. It'd be great. You know, they're they're talking about doing genetically modified stuff to get a bunch of different options to consumers, uh, saving water costs, stuff like that. It'd be great. It'd be so great. And as a health guy, I would love it, but I'm so skeptical. Uh, but good on the Spac Corporation to essentially donate hundreds of millions of dollars to them. It's kind of like charity—charity <laughs> charity
0: that just takes retail investors' money.
1: Yeah, right? that retail investor. Such charity. Yeah. The, what do you think the biggest laughing moment it's a there was? Profit. Probably. Yeah, they're a B Corp, actually, as you expect. <laughs> uh, but what? I, what do you think the funniest part of? You know, there's other parts of the investor presentation, but of what you know, what do you think the funniest part is? Because I think it is the $1.9 trillion addressable market for leafy greens, which is just spinach and salads.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, that wasn't even their potential TAM, which is all vegetables.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, they actually talked about the berry TAM. They had berries TAM in the presentation slide. Uh, (laughs) It was awesome.
0: So they're like, this is actually conservative.
1: Yeah, no, they're talking about berries TAM once they expand the addressable market. Yeah. They got I think they had like we have fifty berry incubators or something like that.
0: They're working on strawberry varieties. I'm know. like pretty anti price to sales, but then when you start giving giving TAM numbers, I almost I almost like it.
1: Uh I mean price to like sales. Let's get
0: back to the sales multiple. Yeah, just give me Forget a p- the earnings.
1: Yeah, I mean, price, people hate on price to sales, and maybe you should use EV to sales. It's good to use both, kind of to see what the debt is and the net cash. But if you just have price to sales, gross margin, operating margin, free cash flow margin, those are the four metrics. Maybe some tax rates. Those are the four metrics. It's all fine, guys. Like
0: yeah, we just talked about that with John Rotanti.
1: Yeah, we did. Well,
0: that I is guess true. We can talk about sales multiple. But anyway, I think that's gonna do it. Uh, unless you have anything else.
1: No. Uh, Please guys stay away from uh these <laughs> spacks. Necessar- if a company's pre-revenue, please, please be cautious. That's yeah. all I have to say.
0: All right. Well, thanks again to John Rotante for coming on. If you guys stuck around for the banter, hope you enjoyed it. Uh before we move on, or I guess as a disclosure, we are general partners at Arch Capital, so uh LPs or investors in Arch Capital might have positions in the securities discussed on this podcast. Uh, we're also not financial advisors, so anything we discuss here on Chitchat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. Feel free to reach out to us at Twitter, at Chitchat Money, wherever you want. Uh, thank you guys for listening, we'll see you next time.